What a blessed opportunity it is to be together this Lord's Day morning. God has so filled the matters of things about us with His creation and the perfectness of it. And you and I can appreciate that on a daily basis and understand that indeed God made it all. As you and I have noticed in the reading this morning, we come to a consideration of the Philippian letter. I might ask again, or at least comment, relative to the thanksgiving that my family and I have for, for your encouragement and support for the gospel meeting you allowed us to be a part of at the Spencer congregation. That seemingly went very, very well, and we're thankful for, for those brethren. But certainly we're delighted to be back with our church family today. The comments about those lessons that were brought forth last Lord's Day and the Bible study portions, simply superb and splendid. We continue to be so very blessed with the membership that we have here, the labor that the, that the set forth in light of all those activities. I would ask that as you perhaps continue to this point with me this morning, that maybe these comments will motivate us to give some thought to the subject of Paul's portrait of contentment. You and I have now read, as you can see, some 540 chapters of the Bible up to the end of the day yesterday. In so doing, we are inching rather close to half of it. As we've studied through those matters in the New Testament with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and now a significant part of Acts, one of the features about the book of Acts that continues to be such an impressive thing is the fact that that book serves as a background to many of the New Testament books that follow. And thus, after reading the matter of chapter 16 and Paul's visit to Philippi, we then turned our attention and read the four chapters of the book of Philippians. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, we find in this book an incredible mention of contentment. That takes on a heightened and amazing consideration once we realize all the features that surround it. And I hope that you and I can do that this morning. The subject of contentment. I suppose we wrestle with that many times, do we not? We ponder it. We wonder about it. We try to appreciate what way that ought to occupy the place in life of a Christian. And yet as we do that, Paul's words should be very meaningful, very moving to us. It is with that in mind, I would invite you then to come to this opening slide in which we will look more carefully at the circumstances surrounding Paul's statement. I'd like you to take a journey with me. In fact, look at a few strokes on that portrait. And let's let Paul identify for us what allowed him to make the statement he made. To do that, we will need to revisit a bit about the Acts chapter 16 comments. In Acts chapter 16, on the second missionary journey, Paul had come to the city of Troas, and while there, he received the so-called Macedonian call. It was that rather stunning statement, Come over into Macedonia and help us, Acts 16.9. The gospel of Jesus Christ had never formally set foot on European soil. And yet here, Paul in a dream, in a vision, if you please, there was a person from Macedonia in Europe begging for him to come and preach the gospel, begging for him to come and share with them the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 3.8. You notice that in the very next verse, Paul and his companions immediately pr proceeded toward that eventuality, and so it was that they came to Philippi. For the first time, the gospel now had made its way to Europe. 
for the first time, the blessed news of the resurrection of Christ and all the hope and promise that went with it had now come to this grand place. At first, of course, there was a very, very small group of followers. You can remember with, with me what they were. When Paul first came to Philippi, he met with some women beside a river. Lydia was baptized in her household. Shortly thereafter, Paul cast out a spirit of divination from a young damsel lady. She too apparently became a part of that initial nucleus of the church in Philippi. And then finally, the final one mentioned in that same chapter, Acts chapter 16, was the jailer. You may recall that at midnight when Paul and Silas were singing and praying and an earthquake loosened the prison doors as well as the shackles and bands that were holding the prisoners, that very night that jailer was baptized. That very night he too became a Christian and some members of his household as well. Acts 16 verses 32 and following. When you and I reflect on the nature of that, consider what nucleus was there. Lydia a jailer, and a young damsel girl. And yet from that initially small group blossomed a congregation that truly was one of the most commended ones in all of the New Testament. You and I read about it in the four chapters of Philippians. What a congregation she was. And as you'll notice, those comments brought us to these matters. That church was active in evangelism by supporting Paul in some distant places in his work. As we arrive at the fourth chapter of the Philippian letter, Paul, in fact, directly complimented them in verse 15 and said no other congregation supported him financially, supported him in the ways that had been done other than the Philippian church. Paul was so thankful for them. He, in fact, appreciated them so very much. But in verses 10 and 11, we learn that an opportunity for their support had now vanished. Due to a lack of opportunity, they had had to stop supporting him. Paul was very much in a state of concern about that decision that they had made. You'll notice in that statement, they did revive their care for Paul, though. The opportunity that had been lacking was then revisited, and they again proceeded to support him in such a bountiful fashion and so Paul lifted up kind thoughts and considerations to God for them and their support of him. It is with that in mind that I would invite you to note the next comment. In Paul's statement about their support of him, he wished to clarify something. That was the lesson text this morning, Philippians 4, verse number 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Paul wanted them to understand it's not that he was begging for money just because he wanted to fill his pockets. Not that he simply wanted a higher luxurious standard of life. Far from it. Not that I speak in respect of want. Paul could say it's not that I am physically in such dire need. He did have his particulars of life met. However, you'll notice that directly leads to Paul's usage of that word. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. The word content. Perhaps we should define that. The word content, as you can well appreciate, literally means a happy state of mind. It literally has with it the idea of being satisfied. 
to be sufficient in oneself, to have enough independent of what may or may not be the case with others. Paul said, that is the way I am. Paul was a gentleman, an individual who himself was in this statement of satisfaction, this statement of happiness of mind. I think it's fair to say that virtually everyone wishes to have that kind of attitude. It has been well noted that if you take a poll of probably a hundred Christians, it's safe to say that three-quarters of them would be such that the book of Philippians would be their favorite New Testament book. Roughly three-quarters, 75%, seemingly have Philippians as their favorite book because of the very topic we're discussing this morning. We find in it a message of contentment, a message of satisfaction, a message of joy. As you and I give thought to that, though, isn't it a bit interesting? It brings us to this issue in contentment. Folks wrestle with it. Maybe you and I wrestle with it. As we ponder the way that wrestling takes place, maybe some statements, some slogans, some quotations might well be in order to share at the bottom of that slide. Socrates once made the statement that contentment is natural wealth. Luxury is artificial poverty. You might want to think about that a minute. Again, Socrates made this interesting statement. Contentment, natural wealth, regardless what may or may not be the case in one's physical money, if you please. His physical possessions, if he's contented, he's a wealthy man. But then the second part of that, luxury is artificial poverty. In other words, no matter how much money, wealth, possessions, otherwise one may have, if one is not contented... He's a poor man, no matter what else might be said. You'll notice even Muhammad, though there's much about him you and I would not endorse. Notice what he said here. Riches are not from abundance of worldly goods, but from a contented mind. It does seem that the idea of contentment is so well to be appreciated. You and I will devote the remainder of our lesson to it. And maybe we can begin it like this. Paul's statement that he made... There is such an intriguing background touching the very presentation of Philippians 4. I'd invite you to take a brief journey with me and look at the state of the man that wrote that. When Paul said that not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content, three times he used the pronoun I in that verse. Three times he was referring to himself. And yet, contented? Please ask these questions with me. As we revisit the book of Acts, we remember well the following scene of events took place. There in Acts chapter 16, we've already studied about that Philippian church and the way that it began with such meager consideration. But you and I remember in Acts chapter 21, Paul was arrested. Here was a man who himself was arrested by the authorities. Lysias and others who salvaged and saved his life and then brought him into a position of safety in the prison, Paul was arrested. However, he had found no opportunity to obtain justice and so he appealed to Caesar, according to Acts 25. As he did so, he was then required to actually go to Rome. The last several chapters of the book of Acts detail his journey to Rome, even suffering shipwreck along the way. But finally, in Acts chapter 28, he arrived in Rome. 
Oddly enough, we find as the book of Acts closes that this gentleman Paul was under house arrest. He didn't have freedom. He didn't have the liberty and luxury to do what he wanted. He literally had to stay under house arrest for two years. For two whole years. During that two-year period of time, Paul wrote four books in the New Testament. Those four books are often called the prison epistles. They are the books of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. All four of those books were written while its author was in prison. Did you notice that Philippians was one of them? The favorite book of so many Christians was written by a man in prison. The favorite book of so many really in the world in terms of any knowledge of the Bible was written by a man who himself was under house arrest during that two-year period of time found in Acts chapter 28. I would ask you to notice the statements that we find in the Philippian letter that bring us to a very intriguing conclusion. Paul stated in chapter 1 of Philippians verses 13 to 16, three times he said he was in bonds. Again, his freedom was not that which he at that moment enjoyed. He was a man under arrest. Those bonds bring us to recognize that there are several words in the Greek text that we seemingly see by virtue of appreciation. Fetters, bonds, chains, those all imply imprisonment. That isn't the only thing, though, to note. In chapter number 1, verse number 30, Paul directly said he experienced conflict. And the literal word means struggle. As that chapter closes, Paul even identified and noted to those Philippian brethren the fact he himself was experiencing trials, struggles. As we come to chapter number 2, it's clear in verse 17 that there was a thought crossing Paul's mind. He had a serious uncertainty about whether he would even be released. Would this imprisonment lead to his death? Would he be put to death by virtue of this decree from, from the Caesar? Can you imagine the day-to-day -day uncertainty of wondering whether the next morning at dawn you'd be put to death? That's the kind of life that Paul was living. He was in prison. He was suffering struggles. He was wondering whether his life would not last here much longer. Not only that, look at the way chapter 2 ends. Paul was under a bit of distress wondering about the features of those that were Christians and the problems they were facing. Remember, the Philippian church themselves, their opportunity to support him had been removed. And there's that mention of Epaphroditus in verses 25 and following of Philippians chapter 2. Here was a man whose service under the banner of Christ was such that it brought him to the very brink of death. Epaphroditus almost died because he was a servant to the Lord. Paul was concerned within and without with all these individuals. As you come to the bottom of that slide, chapter number 3, he makes mention of some enemies. He uses some very descriptive terms. Verse number 2 says, Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Paul wasn't warning about the animals that you and I call dogs. Notice he mentioned dogs, evil workers, and the concision. Those are his means of making reference to those Judaizing teachers who so opposed his efforts and labor and who were such great opponents to the New Testament gospel. 
Paul warned the Philippian church to be on guard for them. It is with all that in mind, you notice this was a man who you might thought would be the furthest from contentment. Enemies within, enemies without. Wondering whether he would be put to death soon. Problems attached to his own imprisonment. And yet as you come to the top of this slide, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that, the key idea, one of the key themes in the book of Philippians is that of joy. That of rejoicing. Did you notice with me? Eighteen times in four little chapters. Eighteen times in 104 verses, Paul makes use of the word joy or the root word rejoice. He sets before those brethren of that day the fact that it is possible to be a person of joy and contentment and satisfaction even in the midst of these circumstances like I'm in. I would ask that you look forward with me on that slide to just a few of Paul's usages. We won't look at all 18 of them. But in chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 17, in prayer Paul was so overwhelmed with joy for the Philippian church, for their faithfulness in Christ, for the stand they took for the truth. Later we see in chapter 3, verse 1, as well as chapter 4, verse 4, that Paul directly admonished them to be people of joy. That's a great message that you and I as Christians still need today, isn't it? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. If Paul could rejoice in circumstances like we just noted he was in, isn't it possible you and I can rejoice? Isn't it possible you and I can be satisfied and contented with the status we have in life? May I suggest that the bottom statements on that slide bring us to chapter number 4. Some of the sweetest and brightest verses certainly to be found are these. I'd invite you to listen as I read starting in verse number 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have done well that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account." But I have all, and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. That doesn't sound like a man in prison. If you and I didn't know the history, that sounds like someone not in prison like you and me. It sounds like someone living in the lap of luxury. Knowing his circumstances, doesn't it paint a much deeper portrait, a much richer shade of appreciation to this fourth chapter of Philippians? Certainly it does, and I would invite you to use the remainder of our time to reflect on not only the statement Paul made, but ways you and I can help apply it to our life as well. First of all, might we ask, where did Paul's contentment come from? 
What's its origin? If you and I can learn the origin for his life, maybe that same origin would serve well for you and me. Let's, in fact, study that like this. Paul said in verse number 11, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He did use that verb learned. I've learned this. It would appear, isn't it true, that contentment ultimately is a matter that must be learned. It doesn't seem to come entirely naturally. For some, maybe, but it seems the majority, it's a matter that must be learned. And may it well be, it happens to be through the crucible of experience. Perhaps these thoughts then come before us. Paul expounded in verse 12 like this, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Paul knew how to enjoy luxury. He knew in verse number 12 how to consider abundance, but he also knew in verse 12 how to be abased. That word abased, as you can see here, it means to have only minimal or humble means. Do you and I know that? If circumstances were to happen to you or to me in which a large number of our possessions were lost, maybe in a fire, maybe in another catastrophe, maybe in a weather-related event, could you and I still be able to say with Paul, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound? You see, contentment must not be based on our physical possessions because they can change. They can be gone. Contentment must arise from a source far deeper than that. It must arise, in fact, from a source independent of those circumstances. Otherwise, it is far too shaky and far too unsound. For Paul, notice where he was. He went on to say in verse 12, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry. The word full carries with it the idea of satisfaction. The word hunger carries with it the notion again of being in a state of not satisfied. He's hungry. Paul said, I've experienced both. And it is with those in mind, he closed that verse, both to abound and to suffer need. That word need literally means to be in want. There were times in life when Paul's physical sustenance was sufficiently lacking. He literally was in need of some things, be it clothing, be it food, be it shelter. We remember in the Second Corinthian letter, he detailed a number of perils in which he found himself. And yet, despite any and all of them, Paul could say he was a contented man. No wonder that kind of contentment brings such rich wealth. Contentment truly is a valuable and a rare commodity. I wonder how many in America, the richest, most materialistic nation on earth, how many are content? Likely not very many. Many might say that they are, but I wonder how many truly are. What about you and me? Paul could say, Not that I speak in respect of one, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Notice these bottom statements. That kind of contentment gives a foundation, a richness, and a perspective and power to life that simply isn't found any other way. And that kind of contentment is worthy of some additional comments and remarks. The Bible actually has quite a bit to say about that topic, doesn't it?
a contented mind. That kind of contentment. As we transition from that slide to the next one, certainly verse number 13 is a very, very strong passage identifying the ultimate source and the ultimate consideration for any Christian. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. It is interesting to note the context in which that's now found. Paul was describing a particular scene again relative to his own circumstances and the state of his own mind. It was in that case, he said, I can do all things. He was able to endure this imprisonment. Whatever it was that the Caesar would decree, Paul was prepared, ready, and able to withstand, endure it, and to conquer it. Whatever the circumstances were relative to the proclamation and brethren's faithfulness or lack thereof, Paul knew he could withstand it. How and through whom? Through Christ, which strengtheneth me. There is the key to the production of ultimately what is contentment. Maybe in light of that, we're prepared to see its embodiment in verses like these. This very chapter highlights so much of them. Verse number 19, But God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. The Philippian church, Paul now addresses them and says, All of those which are your needs, God shall supply them. Isn't it amazing the certainty and the definiteness with which Paul stated that? He didn't say he might provide, he can provide, he should provide. He said he shall provide. The Pippin Church of Christ, God shall provide all our needs through the Lord Jesus Christ. That kind of confidence is a confidence that lifts us above the mundaneness and the ordinate character of the world about us that is so often befit with covetousness, befit with pursuit of that which is far from contentment. A contented mind is able to rise in the morning, thanks be unto God for allowing another day. And thanks be unto God for the blessing of the richness of the breakfast, even if it's a bowl of cereal. A person of contented mind is one who is able through the course of the day to offer a brief thought of prayer just for the lovely blessings that surround him or her. A person of contented mind is able to thank God and appreciate the bounty of a family. The opportunity to appreciate a house, though it may not be exquisite. Perhaps a car, though it may not be the newest brand. The opportunity to understand all of those things, in part, flows from a mind known for contentment. You see, that kind of mind knows that this world is not my home. I'm only here a little while, and ultimately, isn't it true that riches are laid up somewhere else? In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus put it in words like this, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. And then verse 21 puts a bit of icing on that cake. For where your treasury is, there will your heart be also. Contentment. We might ask whether Jesus spoke of it, whether Paul spoke of it. The matter of contentment is such an amazing presentation. 
For you and I do know well that the world can bring some of the things to you and me like it brought to Paul. Others can let us down. We can be discouraged by the choices they make. Enemies can come our way and bring us virtually to our knees. But through it all, can't you and I know contentment? It can even be the case. Right now, we live in a land known for its liberty and freedom, and we can gather here with no fear of persecution. What if that day were to come, that there were government soldiers waiting at the door, ready to imprison anybody that gathered for worship? There are other countries for which something like that happens. And brethren have to gather in the darkness of the night, and they have to meet in secret. Would you and I have enough fortitude, faith, and courage, even in a case like that, to say, I am content? I would hope we all could be of that mindset. I would hope we could appreciate that there truly is, in the fourth chapter of Philippians, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And with that in mind, we come to some of these final thoughts. This gentleman, Paul, that has just wrote these things for us in Philippians, that now take on an entire new picturesque portrait. He also wrote to Timothy in the sixth chapter of that book and said in verses 6 to 8, words that again are quite meaningful as you and I often think about their application for us. Didn't he say in that case, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's put all those words together. First, there is the matter of godliness. It is true that a measure of contentment without godliness is rather empty. It's vain and futile, isn't it? But if you put together godliness with contentment, he says it's great gain. Gain not only in the measure of life here, but surely in the great life to which one looks hereafter. And then he explains, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. That kind of puts it rather plainly, doesn't it? And for you and I who love plainness so much, how much better could it be? We came into this world with nothing, and we're going to leave the same way. We can't take it with us. The only possibility of riches there is to have laid it up so it'll be waiting for us when we get there. That's that very passage we noted in Matthew 6, isn't it? You'll appreciate then, finally, one closing thought. This issue of contentment, as it appears in the New Testament, there's a warning for all of us then, as we see in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. That warning stated rather thoroughly and with great commandment. Namely, you and I are to avoid covetousness. Love not the world. We understand in light of that that Paul was able to write to a Philippian church, a man in such circumstances as he was, and yet tell them he was content. Do you suppose that had great meaning for them? If he, being content and in his circumstances, and they knew he was in those circumstances, no wonder his words, rejoice in the Lord, could have taken on such a new power. May you and I rejoice every day, knowing that in the Lord we too can have contented heart and mind. And it is with that that the matter of obedience... And the book of Revelation, perhaps, is the closing brushstroke on the lesson this morning. The book of Revelation was written to a group of people. And they themselves were being persecuted perhaps even more severely than Paul was. Many of them had been put to death. We read that in Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and following. 
they had been put to death. Christians were suffering tremendous persecution, and yet they were told this, if you will overcome, you can come over and live with me. They had to overcome. In part, the message of contentment was then embroiled in that which they were to appreciate too. I hope you and I think often about the matter of contentment and strive not to be overwhelmed in those matters material, but to realize I have enough, to realize I can be of a sweet disposition and to be of a satisfied mind. In conclusion to the lesson this morning, the fourth chapter of Philippians is truly an exquisite chapter. I suppose that comment might be said about many of the books in the New Testament and its chapters. But to know about Paul's circumstances and yet to be able for him to say, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. You and I may not be in prison, and we may not be such that we meet directly the enemies he did, but what about your contentment and mine? Is it lacking? Is it perhaps unseen? I hope not. I hope for all of us that there is a peace of mind that truly passes all understanding. Philippians 4, 7, same chapter in which we've been studying. Today, if you aren't a Christian, then you really can't have contentment. You might have enough money and you might have enough other things, but the most basic contentment of life is at this point not yours. For you need to be saved and you need to be in the blood-bought institution of the Lord. And if you're not, if you're not... You don't know contentment. I trust that you will, you will with urgency think about where you currently stand. Paul could later say, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is led up for me a crown of life, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all of them also that love is appearing. 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. Today, if you aren't a person of that kind of confidence, let's make it so. You must take the first step. Jesus has given His life for you. Now you must respond. You must reply. You must make a confirmation in heart and mind that, yes, I want to be a part of that body. I want to know that contentment. And I want to live faithfully. The plan of salvation demands that you believe Jesus with all of your heart to be the Son of God, Acts 8.37. That you repent of your sins, Acts 2.38 that you confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, and that you be baptized for the remission of your sins, again, Acts 2, verse 38, 1 Peter three twenty one. If today we could be of help to you in any of that way, we'd be delighted to do it. If you have become a Christian, but you have long since lost contentment, it simply is not a part of your repertoire any longer. Why not come back today to what is the best life here and the only one of contentment that will lead to a sweetness hereafter? We pray with you and for you if needed. We would only ask you let us know the way we can help and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.